Good morning. Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church. In lieu of what uh, we heard from Brock earlier and what Pastor just prayed, I'm going to encourage you to do something this week. Um, this is a big moment in our church and in the history of our church and a decision that is going to be made. I, will, I would like to encourage you, challenge you to pray this week. Be in, and I, I know you say, I pray every week. I hope so. But pray specifically this week for not just the elder board, not just our body, not just our church, but for these two men, for these two men and their families. Um, I know God is in this because his word is in the middle of it all. We are in the midst of, of making a choice that is eternal. God is in control of that, so we have no worries with regard to uh, these types of decisions that are made. He directs the steps of man. And we certainly know he directs the steps of his servants. But in the process, we fallen human beings are in the middle of all of this. And if we forget to talk to the one who's in control, we can get, we can get led astray. We can, we can lose focus. So I pray that you pray for this whole process as we culminate this this week. And pray for those two men and their families. Pray for us as we go through this. And pray for our body and for discernment, and for wisdom for yourself, and for, for the rest of us. So I would encourage you to do that. As we go forward in John, Pastor also alluded to this. He mentioned in his prayer just now, which is so intertwined into my introduction, this idea of what we can learn from Jesus, from our Savior, from our Messiah. If you were not here for our number one, where were you, number one? But, uh, no, I, I teased, but what a great introduction. He, he basically stole my introduction. Now, because some of you weren't here, I'm going to repeat some of these same things. So, but what a, an incredible thing that the Holy Spirit does from hour one to hour two. This has happened for years here, and not just here, anywhere where the Word of God is breached, where the Word of God is handled, where we reason together in God's Word. The Holy Spirit is in control and he wants you to learn from his word. Let me repeat that. He wants you and is desiring for you and is convicting you to learn from his word. So when it is handled in hour one and handled in hour two, it should be of no surprise or shock to you that things are connected, that things just flow together. What we heard in hour one was all about purpose. And for the last two weeks, Pastor has been introducing this book of Ecclesiastes, as a lesson from a man who got it wrong, the teacher, the preacher, who got it wrong, but can now see the purpose in life and what that is all about. What we're going to see today is that Jesus knew what his purpose was about. He still knows what his purpose is about. He has always known what his purpose is about. And I'm going to challenge you with this. When we consider Jesus Christ and how he is laid out in Scripture, and that's what we know of him, by the way. It is not based on necessarily somebody's human experience or their feeling or some dream they may have had. If you want to know who Christ is, you are going to find it in the pages of the book that is in front of you right now. That is what you must rely on. And as we go through the Gospel of John, John the Apostle does a wonderful job, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of laying out the heart of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he is about, and what he was born for, why he came for this. This statement, I was born for this, 
You hear man arrogantly making that statement, don't you? You'll hear that in business. You'll hear that in politics. You'll hear that in sport. I was born for this. And they stand up like a peacock. And they don't really understand what they're saying. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. When he not only makes that sort of statement in our passage today in John chapter 12, which, if I haven't told you, start turning there. We hear that in John chapter 12. We are going to hear that in John chapter 18. And Jesus knew exactly what he was born for. But here's my challenge to you. In order for you to know what you were born for, you need to learn what he was born for. In order for you to know your purpose in life, you need to know his purpose in life. In order for you to know what troubled heart you should have, you need to know the kind of troubled heart he had and why. In order to know how to glorify the Father, you need to see how he glorified the Father. In order to to know how to humble yourself and serve the Lord, you need to know how he humbled himself and obeyed the Father. In order to know how to truly love God, the Godhead, you need to see how Jesus truly loved his Father and his will. If you want to know exactly how to fight against the schemes of the devil, you need to see how Christ fought against the schemes of the devil. See, it is imperative, it is crucial, it's critical that we learn from the Master. That we learn exactly how life should be, what your purpose in life is, how to bring honor and glory and praise to the Almighty. And by the way, that is what you were made for. To bring Him glory, honor and praise. That is what you were... In order to know this, we need to see how he did that. And as we heard in hour number one, boy, we can get astray on that purpose pretty quick. We can get astray on what it is we're here for, what we're doing. And uh, our enemy is very good at sleight of hand. He's very good at disturbing that focus and that purpose that we should have. So here's what we're going to look at today. It would help if I turned on this little device. Here's what we're going to look at today. The true purpose of Christ's incarnation, why his soul was troubled, God the Father speaking from heaven, and you may think that that is just something that happens all the time, it didn't, and the ruler of this world, who he, who he is. Now where we were last week, John delivered a fantastic message, and in, in the passage just before the passage we're going to look at, ending in verse 26 of John chapter 12, Here's what we saw. Some Greeks were pursuing Christ, and what John laid out for us was a a fantastic rendering of exactly what we see, a qualification. What we saw last week was the characteristic of, of an unbelieving follower, someone who claimed Christ but not truly a believer, and then the characteristics of a believing follower. And I'm not going to reissue to you the sermon, but again, an excellent sermon if you weren't here Please listen to that and, and, and learn from God's Word. But we see these signs, these elements, these characteristics, and He challenged us. The Lord challenged us through the Word last week and laid down the gauntlet, where do you stand? Who do you think that He is? In hour number one, Pastor made reference to this. All that will matter when you face Jesus is what did you do with His Son? That, that, that's all that's going to matter. That's all that will make a difference. This morning, and although Pastor referenced it, I had already intended to, two things that 
that I knew were coming simply because, uh, you know, I can read what's coming up next. In both Psalm 86 and Ecclesiastes 12, here's what we heard this morning. The end of the matter of this, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, you heard this in hour, one to, uh, hour number one, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. The focus should be this. There is the, the, the idea, the choice that you will make as we go into this sermon and as you hear the word of God is not complicated. It is simple. It is black and white. It is cut and dry for God will bring every deed into judgment. And what we just heard read from Psalm 86 this morning is, here is what we hear. You are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. That is number one. Verse 11 of that same chapter. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Boy, they sound a lot alike, don't they? And that is what I'm going to challenge us to do as we look at this passage today. To unite our heart with Christ's heart. And I say this to both the non-believer... The non-believer in here, once again, will hear the gospel, as you will every week you walk through these doors, or we're failing you, that you must repent and believe on the only one who can save you, that your heart is united to his via the Holy Spirit that will be imparted to you and baptized in the Holy Spirit when you put your faith in Christ. He will do that and renew you and regenerate you. But for the, for the believer as well, we are in Christ and yet we can fall away. Not from the faith and not from the security of salvation, don't misunderstand me, but from doing what he calls you to do. We can forget our calling, what you were called for. And so the challenge is twofold this morning, that we remember our purpose, that we understand what we're here for, that we understand that we were here not to serve ourselves, but to serve the only one who is worthy of that serving. So let us go to John chapter 12, and let me read this passage. We're going to cover verse I have here, 27 through 28a. Maybe that's all I should have covered, by the way, but I'm going to go through verse 31 today. So let's read the whole thing through these five verses, which is, believe it or not, a lot. And we will, um, we will break this down. So go with me to John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus, after laying down the gauntlet of what a true follower really is, really looks like, says this. Now is my soul troubled, verse 27. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Before I jump into all of this, in the midst of this, I want you to notice what Christ says about this voice from heaven. It's for you. It's for me. It's for the people who were there. Jesus knew his purpose. He is challenging you to say, do you know yours? Do you know why you're here? Do you know who I am? And what do you say about me? So let's start with this very first statement. Now is my soul troubled. We see this statement here, and we've seen this before. I'm going to very briefly go through this because it's been covered. Pastor did a wonderful job of covering this same Greek word in the past. But Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. It's vexed. He's perplexed. There's anxiety that is not sinful anxiety, but there is there is trouble in his heart. 
we see this here. And here's this Greek word, my soul is troubled, terasso. It's a, to agitate, to trouble, a thing by the movement of its parts to and fro. They're stirring inside of him. It's an interesting thing to think about our Savior having this sort of stirring in him, but it shouldn't surprise you. He is living in and amongst a sinful world and taking on human flesh. Remember, he's always existed in perfection and holiness. And now he's on this planet. Believer, I'll challenge you, as you look around and you see what's going on around you and you see the sin that has just entangled the world, does it trouble you? Are you vexed? Are you stirring on the inside? I think so too. It shouldn't surprise you. It says to cause one inward commotion, to take away his calmness of mind, disturbed, troubled, strikes your spirit, horror, anxiety, agitation. It's very interesting. This is what the Greek word here means, and this is applying to our Savior. His heart is troubled. Now, we've seen this before, as I've mentioned. Don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but we've seen this before. We've seen this in the past, speaking of other people. The disciples felt this when they saw him walking on the sea. They were terrified. They were troubled at heart. Slightly different use of this, but humans can feel this. John 14, he says this to his apostles a little later. At the end of this upper room discourse, right after the Lord's Supper, don't let your hearts be troubled. He could see right into their hearts. He saw that there was this inward commotion going on, to and fro, this anxiety. And then we, we see again Jesus in Luke chapter 24. They were startled and frightened. They, they thought that they saw a spirit, and he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? We see this of men, but we also see this in Jesus. He was greatly troubled. Why? What was going on here? Pastor Kevin made reference to this, this idea that he was troubled in and around this resurrection of Lazarus. Did Christ know that he was going to resurrect Christ, uh, Lazarus from the dead? Of course. Did Christ know that he himself would be resurrected? Of course. Does he know that he will resurrect you someday? Of course. He wrote all this. He knows this. But he was troubled at heart for a variety of reasons, which we'll unpack as we go forward. But he's greatly troubled. Now, I'll just give you a hint. What I don't think he was troubled about was the pain and suffering of the cross going to be a reality for him? Yes, it was. Was the falling away of his apostles and running and fear going to happen? Yes, it was. Was the doubt of the people following him and claiming to be Christians, followers of him at that time, was that a reality that they would fade away? Yeah, that was a reality. That would trouble, that would trouble him too. But there's going to be a greater anguish that I think Jesus is speaking of here that is much bigger than all of those things. And we'll unpack that as we go forward. But as we see this, there's more in this verse beyond just his trouble. We'll unpack the true troubling heart that Jesus had. But he says something that is going to help us understand what the true, true trouble is. He says something about this hour. Now, I'll just tell you, I don't think he's talking about a 60-minute time period here. You know, that hour. It's not the, that it happened to be 12 o'clock in the afternoon or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I think you know that that's not what he is speaking of. He's saying saving from this hour. What are we dealing with when we're talking about this hour? Well, we see this in John. John does a great job of unpacking this for us, don't we? We see this all throughout this, this book, this gospel, where John uses this phrase because Christ used the phrase. 
So John gained an understanding. Look at what we see Jesus saying. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Speaking of his mother, this is the turning water into wine miracle. My hour has not yet come. Now the hour he is speaking of here is the beginning of his ministry, revealing that he is the Messiah. Timing mattered. The culmination of this hour is what Jesus is referencing. He had to die at exactly the right time because prophecy said so, and he had to fulfill the prophecies of being the lamb that was slain. We'll see that as we go forward. Jesus understood what the hour meant here. John 7, verse 30. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. He couldn't just die by being stoned or thrown off of a cliff, as they've tried to do in the past, or just mob rule. He had to die by being nailed to a cross. He had to die in a way in which he took the chastisement upon himself, that by his stripes you would be healed. It had to be that way. So he's speaking of this culminating hour. And then in John 8, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him, couldn't be arrested at this time because his hour had not yet come. I think we understand what he is dealing with here. The hour that matters the most, I would say the six hours that matter the most, the time that he was hanging on that cross, not for himself, not because he was sinful, but because you are. Because I am. Because you couldn't pay that price. Oh, you could hang on a Roman cross, but you would just die and you would just suffer. You couldn't hang on a Roman cross and pay for anything of eternal value. But he could, and that is the hour he is speaking of. So we understand this hour. And in John 13, 1, now before the peace, peace, or feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come... He knows exactly what's going on. This isn't a shock to him. His timing is epic and perfect to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own. And the reason I put this in is because I just love this phrase. He loved his own who were in the world, and it says he loved them to the end. Have you ever looked into that phrase? Jeffrey makes mention of he sometimes can't get through a few verses, maybe a few words in the Bible, and it hangs him up. This is one of those for me. Do you know what this means? He loved them to the uttermost, to perfection. It gets me emotional because he knew what he was about to do, and he had you in mind. He had me in mind. The wretch that I am, I'll say it, the wretch you are too. He had you in mind, and he loved you to the very end, to the uttermost. You know he had had options to get out of that. He would still be God. He, He could have written it any way he wanted. He could have started over as he uttered many times before we get to this point. I could just start over with you, Moses, as John the Baptist said. I could just make these stones into my own own inheritance. I could have done that. He's God. He could do what he wants, but he loved you to the very end, to the perfection he loves his own to, with that eternal, perfect love that makes him God. And he did that for you. Do you take those sorts of statements personally? He loved you to the end, to the uttermost, to the very end of it. And he says this, for this purpose I have come to this hour. To the hour we just established, why he appeared. Very quickly, let me take, a, take you through a rundown of what John says of this. In 1 John 3, John says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. So Jesus came for a variety of reasons, to teach us, to show us 
the real way to live, to perform miracles, to, to prove who he is, to bring glory to the Father. But for you, the very paramount thing is he, he had to deal with your sin that you couldn't deal with. And in him, there was no sin. John six fifty one. there is an eternal value to this. He says, I am the living bread, we've dis- discussed this one before, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He's dealing with your sins so that you can live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's going to die for sins. And then Paul gives us this, and the author of Hebrews, whoever that might be, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is about eternal life. Hebrews 2, verse 9, but we see him for a little while, while he was made lower than the angels, that humiliation of Christ, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. If you think he just came here to be a good teacher, you're missing it. If you think he just came here to perform miracles and impress people, you're missing it. If you think he just came here, you know, to show off, you're missing it. He came here because you desperately needed him to come here. He came here because he could see right through who you really are. All the masks you put on, all the fake things that you do, all the things that you and I do to justify ourselves, he can see through every bit of it. And he came because he knew what had to happen. Something had to be done with the dreadful, wicked, dark, twisted heart that you and I have. He came to die. There had to be a blood sacrifice, and it had to be a perfect one. And he was the only one that could do this. For the sake of time, I'm not going to take you through this, but he knew. He knew because he wrote it. We covered Zechariah chapter 12. I personally preached that to you not that long ago, maybe a year ago, that he knew his own people would pierce him and they would mourn. He knew this would happen. He knew that then he would show mercy and grace to them and this is yet to come in many ways. He knew when he wrote Isaiah 53 through Isaiah that he would have to suffer on that Roman cross and face the scourging that no one, no one could possibly survive. He knew that that would happen. He knew when he wrote Psalm Chapter 22, 1,000 years before he ever walked the face of the earth in human form, that he would fulfill that to the letter. He knew it, so this is no shock to him. But then he also says this, in thinking back on all of this, in John chapter 10, for this reason, the Father loves me. He loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He loves me because I do what he says. He loves me because he and I are one. He loves me because we wrote this before and it's always going to happen and there isn't a single word in God's word that will ever fall void. Not one. Every single one will be brought back. And he said this to Pilate face to face. This is another one of these chilling statements. This is after, you know, this is all said and done and his condemnation is at hand and Pilate's trying to figure all of this out. And Jesus didn't say much to the Jewish leadership. They'd had a lot said to them already. But to this man, he says some really epic things. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. You're right. For this purpose I was born. I was born for this. And when he says I was born for this, to be a king, he didn't mean that he was going to reign right there, overthrow the Romans. He didn't mean that he was going to show them all who he is right there on the spot 
and bring thunder and lightning down from heaven and it consume them all. He could have done that. I was born for this purpose. What purpose? To take away your sin. To pay the price. To be the substitute. To do what you couldn't do. For this purpose I've come into the world. And how do I know that he's talking about the salvation that comes through the blood of his cross? Because notice what he says. To bear witness to the truth. I can't think of a greater truth than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you? As we look at this word of God that we have in front of us, all of it points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of it is true, and it all points to him and what he was doing. For this purpose, everyone who is of this truth listens to my voice. He knew what this was all about. So finally, what, what is this? And I don't mean finally for the sermon. Now just, just dig in. I mean, finally, for the true anguish, this section. What was this true anguish about? What, what was it? Was it the pain? Was Jesus afraid of the pain? Was, it, was he afraid of the mocking? Was, was Jesus not quite as tough as some of the heroes that we have, even within our own you know, military lore or athletic prowess? Was he just afraid because you know, he didn't want to take a beating? Nah, I don't think so. Remember, he wrote this. I think he ran that through his head plenty of times. He understood physical pain. He was homeless for three years. He, he didn't walk around and, and, go and, and, and be accepted by everybody for his three-year ministry. There were people who wanted to abuse him and kill him before this moment, before this hour. He's well aware of physical pain. We have plenty of martyrs that we hear account of that faced horrific pain boiled alive, cut in half, crucified, burned alive. Other men can do that. It's not the physical pain I don't think we're dealing with. I think we get an insight on this as we look in the garden. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 22 in the garden of Gethsemane. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed and saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup. The key here is in this cup. Is this cup, this, the crucifixion, uh, Crucifixion's never referenced as a cup. Is it the whipping and the scourging? Well, the Roman scourging's never referenced as a cup. What's the cup? Well, the Bible does reference something else as the cup, the cup of God's wrath. Keep that in mind. When you read cup here, you should think the wrath of the Father. God's wrath for the sin that is in this world. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Is there some way that I won't feel this wrath? But so quickly, because he was so in tune, because he and the Father were one, that's not his conclusion. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Not my will, but yours. That quick return, and the grace that he bestows on us is bestowed on him. The Holy Spirit is there, and he is... He's troubled in heart, but he's willing to do what's hard in front of him. And there's so much that we can take from this, of course, in our own lives. But the anguish he was feeling is this anguish that we've covered so many times from this pulpit. The great exchange anguish. You understand that the perfect God of the universe, who is now walking around in human flesh for the first time, with the exception of a few pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament situations, but walking around in this ministry for 33 years, we see him 
knowing that he is going to experience sin for the first time. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that you could become the righteousness of God. You know this passage. But do you understand that you've been in and around sin your whole existence? You've become callous to it, desensitized to it. We live in and amongst other sinners. You are a sinner. You live in a sinful world. You make sinful decisions. He never did. He never experienced that. We can't even imagine what that would be like. And because of that, we know the consequences of sin because we feel them every day. We see them every day. He had never, ever felt that. Perfect communion, union with the Father. What does Christ do? Galatians 3, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He'd never been a curse. You're a walking curse. And your life and the world around you is a, is a living example of the curse. It's been getting worse since the first sin was, was committed. And it's groaning for the Lord to redeem it ultimately at his return. He never felt that. Imagine God incarnate knowing he's about to feel the wrath of God, which, by the way, Christian, you're never going to feel. You're never going to... You say, oh, I, I can connect to this. No, you can't. No, you can't. You'll never feel what you deserve. Christian, does that motivate you to live for him? Does that change your heart? He felt what you should have felt. And he knew it was coming. Oh, the pain was going to be bad. It was going to be horrific. But that's not the true anguish. The true anguish was understanding what he was going to face for you and for me. At the spiritual level, that emotional spiritual level that we could not possibly understand. MacArthur says this about this, and of course, he's got some great understanding. Was he afraid to be beaten? Was he afraid to be nailed? Was he afraid for the cross? No, no. That wasn't what tormented him. People seem to think, well, isn't this an evidence that his humanity was more powerful than his deity? No. This is an evidence that his deity is more powerful than his humanity. Why? His trouble came not from anticipating physical suffering, but anticipating divine wrath, spiritual suffering. That was a terrifying reality. Though the nails must have gone through his hands and feet a thousand times as he thought about it, the agony of the sinless Son of God was not that he would be nailed, but he would be judged by the wrath of God. Not that he would be stained with blood, but that he would be condemned for sins. That he didn't commit the sins of all who would ever believe. Those tortured his soul with a fierceness. Yeah, yeah. Now, I asked Pastor about this, and I nearly eliminated this from my sermon, but I talked to him about it. He says, no, you need to make this connection. It's important. Jesus was troubled. He was vexed. He was fighting on the inside because he hated sin so much. So my question for you, and I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7, is... getting a little worked up and kicked my mic off. Some demons trying to throw us off here is moving my mic around. Gives you time to get to Romans 7. My question is this. Jesus was conflicted with sin that he'd never experienced. Your sin. Are you? Are you? Do you feel it? 
Is this something that's inside of you that's a battle that is waging? Do you look at your own life and say, I am a miserable wretch? Do you look at your own life and say, why do I continue to do this? Do you look at your own life and say, why do I continue in this body of sin? Why, why, why? Is that you? Let's see what Paul has to say about himself. Paul is very personal in this text. I can't spend as much time as I'd like to on it, but we're going to look at it for just a moment. Here's what Paul says. In con- he understands this law of sin that's going on, that's waging in his... He understands the law of grace, but he understands the law of sin. I know, verse 18, that nothing good dwells in me, in his heart, who he really is. That is in my flesh. He's qualifying that. He knows the Holy Spirit who is in him is good, but he's talking about his flesh. I have the desire to do what is right. Now, let me pause. Look up at me for just a moment. Okay, where does this new desire come from? It comes from above. Okay, this comes from an eternal place. This comes from Jesus himself. This comes from the Holy Spirit that has been given to you. And this is a whole new heart. You're a whole new creature. But there is something still in you, in the flesh, that is fighting against that continually. Believer, this should be extremely common for you. You should feel this daily. But back to the text. I have the desire to do what is right. That comes from Jesus. That comes from the Holy Spirit, but not the ability to carry it out. My flesh, that's who I really am. I do not do the good I want, right? That new life that I, and the new heart, but the evil that I don't want is, I keep on doing it. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Are you one of these arrogant Christians that think you got sin whipped? That you think, well, that's them, but no, I'd never do that. that uh, they may struggle with that, but I'd never say that. I'd never think that. I would never react like that. I would never treat them like that. I would never fall into that sin. Mm, be careful. Be careful. We know who Christ is. We know what his word says. We know the Holy Spirit is convicting us and driving us to do what is right. But we know that there is a law of sin in us too. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God. I hope you do, believer. I hope you love his word. I delight in it too, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death Here's the good news. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The reason I bring this up is this. Is that true of you? I know the sin part is. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you, does it bother you? Or do you just justify it? Do you just qualify it? Do you compare and contrast it? Does it bother you? Is there troubled heart in you? A troubled heart in you? Sin troubled Jesus. The fact that he would face the wrath of God troubled Jesus. Does it trouble you that Jesus had to face the wrath of God because of your sin? Does it trouble you that you continue to do what you've been saved from? Does it trouble your heart that when you know what the Word of God says but you find it hard to do? Here's the good news. If it troubles you, that's good news. That's good news. If it doesn't trouble you, that's bad news. That means you're serving self. You're serving this world, and you've given yourself over to it because you really don't think it's a big deal. Do you hate what Jesus hates? 
And do you love what Jesus loves? MacArthur has one more great quote about this. He says there, this, There was agony in the tortured soul of Christ over the thought that he would have to bear this sin, which means he was fighting through to obey God, fighting through strong, strong forces. That human nature, that's not sin because he was without sin, a lamb without blemish and without spot. It is the true experience of every Christian to live in this conflict that I just discussed. We are holy as he is holy, are are confronted by evil all the time around us and in us, and that war goes on all the time. Your genuineness as a believer, your authenticity as a believer, is as much manifested by your conflict as it is by your joy. Interesting. Very interesting. So as we go forward in this, the end of this, as we consider this, Jesus, as we go back to John chapter 10, Jesus says, John chapter 12, excuse me, John chapter 12, verse 28, that this is for God's glory. Let's look at this. Jesus, Jesus makes mention to this, Father, glorify your name. He, in retrospect, as he looks at the agony and the trouble that's going on in his art, he knows this. This is for the Father's glory. The fact that he would save you from your sins and give you a way out glorifies the Father. For God's glory. This may be a newsflash for you, but Jesus did everything for God's glory. And he talks about it quite a bit. Take a look at John 7, 18. The one who speaks in his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, he's speaking of himself and his Father, is true. And in him there is no falsehood. I'm doing what God tells me to do. I'm doing what the Father tells me to do because I'm one with him and I love him. John eight twenty nine, same screen we see. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He was about glorifying the Lord. He did things for God's glory. And ultimately, we see him in his high priestly prayer say this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to the heaven, to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, our Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus didn't want to be glorified because he wanted to show off. He wanted to glorify the Father. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who would have, he have, you have given him, We just discussed that. This eternal life that we know. You, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He was all about giving God glory. So once again, let me lay this at your lap. What are you all about? You all about God's glory or your glory? Pastor gave us a definition this morning um, about humanism. And the humanistic thought, living your life for self versus for God. We know the end of all things is to fear God and do what he says. But what, a, what do you do in life for? What are you doing the things you're doing in life for? What's the end game for you? Paul has something to say about this. He says, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What he's talking about here in context, we can't go to this passage because we'll be here all afternoon. But he's talking about, you give up things for the sake of the gospel. You're willing to sacrifice your own freedom in Christ that you can do, because you're saved. But you do whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 10, and general, verse 33, I've got 31 up here. Paul says this, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the, that, that, that this, he says this, this is the key to it, but that 
of that here's here's what he wants that of my my doing whatever i'm doing that they may be saved whatever i do that there more can be saved that this is what glorifies the lord that people hear the gospel and they get saved what glorified the lord when Jesus lived his life as he did and fulfilled the prophecies that he fulfilled and gave his life as a ransom for many was that many would be saved and that glorified the Lord, that glorified the Father. And what you do in life should glorify the Father as well. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In verse 16 of that passage, this is what we oftentimes go to about why we get into the Word of God. Verse 16 of Colossians 3 is that you should let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? That's what motivates you, I'm not going to spend much time on that today, to admonish one another to, to do the things that we are to do as believers. That you are in the Word of God and you're allowing it to richly bless you and change you so you can help others do the same thing. That's what we see preceding verse 17 that glorifies the lord so peter says this as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of god's varied grace whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of god whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that god supplies in order that in everything what god may be glorified through jesus christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever incredible so we see that jesus wanted to glorify the father and he's challenging you to glorify the Father in all that you do. And it all wraps around the gospel. Now, as we go forward in this passage, we see that there is a voice from heaven. Here's what it says, John chapter 12. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus said, I want to glorify the Father. He says, it's glor- I've, get- I've been glorified, and I'm going to get glory again. You've glorified me in your life, and you're going to glorify me again in your death and resurrection. That's what he's talking about. But it says, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Now, we've seen this two other times where a voice from heaven came down and was heard. And we see this at the baptism of Christ. We won't spend time on it. I just want to show it to you. When Christ was baptized, the the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. If we go back here, notice, I have glorified it. I've been glorified in my Son. I'm well pleased with my Son. And he said that here. Notice at the Mount of Transfiguration, we see a very similar phrase. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So we have two other times where a voice from heaven is spoken where men can hear in the midst of Christ and his work, and we have a commonality here. That's my son, and I'm well pleased with him. I have been glorified in him, and I will be glorified in him again. And he adds this little caveat. Now he says this to Peter, but apply this to you. Listen to him. Listen to him. There's so much that he has to teach you. As I started with, what does he say? Listen to my son. So what the father says is this. I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I've glorified it. I will glorify it again. Listen to him. I'm well pleased with him. He's the one you should pay attention to. 
You notice this when, when we see this with Lazarus in the resurrection. Jesus said to her, this is right before he resurrects Lazarus. This is the two verses before it. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? If you want to see the glory of God, if you want to see what Jesus, the Father is saying of Jesus, read the Word. You're going to see it glorified over and over and over again in the life of Christ. I will glorify it, and I'm going to glorify it again. John 13, a little later in where we're going to be. When he had gone out, Jesus said, this is right after the Lord's Supper. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God has glorified him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Amazing. I've glorified him and I'm going to glorify him again. Everything Christ did glorified the Father. Everything he did glorified the Father. And if we think of this, can we go back to this passage and say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Can we look at our life and say, Am I listening to him, the one in whom he is well pleased? Am I heeding his words? As I started this message, am I considering who Christ is and what I should be? Do I do the things Christ does? Do I react the way Christ reacts? Do I love what he loves? Do I hate what he hates? Here's what Begg says about this. It's accurate to say that God has glorified himself, has glorified his son, has glorified the Godhead, in all the miraculous activities found in the Gospel of John. No doubt. Every time a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the name of God the Father is glorified through the Son. No doubt. We, we talked about that. Every time someone in a local congregation has gone deep with God through His Word and made commitments as they have searched the Scriptures on their own and have gone out to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the name of God has been glorified through the Son. But the phrase, I have glorified it and will glorify it again, Clearly within the context as we approach the passion is a reference to the humiliation of the cross and to the exaltation of the resurrection and to the wonder of the ascension. The Father speaks from heaven and assures His Son again of His purpose in and through Him and how it must have stirred Him to obedience. Jesus specifically says, I, this is for you. But man, can you imagine how He felt reaffirming what He already knew why He was here? You came for this. You were born for this. And everybody else, you need to heed this and learn this and listen to this. This is for us to understand. And I think it's amazing that the people said it sounded like thunder. I don't know that, that the, the, the folks that were listening, some thought it was an angel, some thought it was thunder. I think they were more impressed with the, the event of it, the sound of it, than the actual words of it, and the fact that he was pointing him to the, his son that was standing right in front of him. So often they miss that, right? They see the signs and they, they're impressed. And it's, it's so amazing to see what you, people, thousands followed him to get fed, to watch miracles, to see people resurrected. But they, they didn't see the real reason. They didn't see the real reason. Listen to him. He's telling you you're sinners that need him, that you need him, that you, you need someone to redeem you. This thunder, we hear this described in the Bible and other places, this idea that it sounds like thunder. Second Samuel, we see this. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered His voice. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered His voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. Impressive. It's impressive. Job, we see it here. God thunders with His voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. 
Job 49? Or do you have an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? It's impressive to think about this. But I can't help but to, to think about the story of Elisha. If you know that, and you consider or the story of Elijah, excuse me, because you think, what, what did Elisha do? Elijah, the story of Elijah, when he was down and out and despondent, after serving the Lord and seeing a great victory, and really saw the, the fire from heaven come down and consume his sacrifice on the top of Mount Carmel, you know how this story goes. He hears a bad message that he's going to be killed by Jezebel, and he goes running. And he goes running because he's depressed and he's concerned, and he he comes to the conclusion, just take me, Lord. I'm the only one left. Just, just take me. He goes from a high to a low. But when God spoke to him, he didn't speak to him in thunder. And he didn't speak to him in fire and a great wind. He spoke to him in a quiet voice. Yes, God speaks with a thunderous voice. But sometimes we don't hear that. We're impressed. We see these incredible miracles. But are you really listening? Are you understanding what you've been told already? Listen to him. Don't just be impressed with him. Listen to him. He's telling you, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Pastor mentioned this in hour one. He's telling you that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He told his apostles, and he's telling you the Great Commission. You go out and tell people who I am and what this is about. You see, he did this, and he said this, not for Jesus' sake, but for our sake. And as we start to land the plane, notice what it says here as we go through. John 12, verse 30 through 31. Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus didn't need confirmation. He knew who he was. He's already talked about that. But he wants you to be reminded of who he is. He wants you to heed his voice in the words he's about to say. You understand that upper room discourse that is coming very soon in our Bibles. He has a lot to say to you, believer. He has a lot to say to me. He has a lot to say to you, unredeemed. And he is telling us, as he is setting us up for this Passion Week and all of the incredible instruction he's giving and challenges to listen for our sake. This is for us to hear. And he said this earlier in in the Lazarus incident. Notice he says in John 11, 41 through 42, verse 42, I knew that you will hear me speaking to the Father, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Let's remind ourselves of why John wrote this gospel. As we look at all of this, and as we've been going over this for months, and we will continue to do so, as we think about this, do you remember what the conclusion is for John, why he wrote all this down? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. It comes down to that, to that same, same decision. Do you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name? Non-believer, if you're still sitting here and, and just wandering around in your mind and, and that conflict inside of you is, is, is whether or not this is real or Jesus is truly the Christ or is the Word of God true, you know the truth. Eternity is put in the hearts of men. It's time for you to break down. It's time for you to repent. It's time for you to believe. As the Holy Spirit draws you, as the Father draws you to the Son, yield, believe in Him. But He says this, Back to this text, the God of this world, the ruler of this world. And I'm going to end with this. What I see here is an incredible encouragement. This is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 
And we may stop here and say, we win. True, we do. Satan is defeated. When Jesus died on that cross and he walked out of that tomb, or however he got out of that tomb, he may have flown out, Satan was defeated, no doubt about it. You could come to that conclusion and be right. He's whipped. But here on earth, right here, right now, he's still the God of this world. He's still waging war against the souls of man. He's still waging war not just against the non-believer, but you too, believer. He's still fighting against what is the ultimate end for him, and he is trying to take as many miserable souls as he can with him. And if you think, believer, that this is all over and you can just ride easy, you're missing what Scripture teaches. Here's what we know when we consider the ruler of this world. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in, in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He has defeated him eternally. But we also know this, going to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? So yeah, he's beat. But your job is a little tougher right now because you're fighting against someone who's really good at his job. And not just Satan, but all of the third of the angels that fell with him. And they're, they're doing their very best to deceive the world and deceive them into thinking that the word of God isn't true and your message of the gospel is in vain. They're doing their very best. In their case, the God of this world, same language Jesus uses, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Your job is a little tougher. Your job here in this world is a little tougher because although Satan is beaten, there is a time frame in the mass of eternity. It's a small time frame. But in hum, human terms, he's been here a long time and he's still fighting against you and you got a hard job in front of you. We know, 1 John five nineteen. we know that we are from God. You know that you're saved. That's true what we just read in Hebrews. That's true what Jesus just said in, in John 12. But we know also, 1 John five nineteen, that the whole world lies in the trap, in the hands, in the snare of the evil one. The power of the evil one. We know this from Ephesians chapter 2, don't we? Because this is where we were too. So here's why I say all of this. we got to keep in mind what we're fighting against. you got to understand that you have a job to do. And Pastor referenced Chuck Swindoll this morning. I'm going to do the same. He's got a great quote from his book. This book is about Christian living. It's an older book. It's from 1989. But it's above, living above the level of mediocrity. Here's what he says about this God of this world. The world system is committed to at least four major objectives, which I can summarize in four words. Fortune, fame, power, and pleasure. First and foremost, fortune, money. The world system is driven by money. It feeds on materialism. Second, fame. That is another word for popularity. Fame is the longing to be known to be somebody in someone else's eyes. This was written in 1989, way before social media. Now You can magnify that one now. Fill in your own blanks. Third, power. This is having influence, maintaining control over individuals or groups or companies or whatever. It is a desire to manipulate and maneuver others to do something for one's own benefit. Fourth, pleasure. At its basic level, pleasure has to do with fulfilling one's sensual desires. It's the same mindset that's behind the slogan, if it feels good, do it. The God of this world is ruthless and relentless 
as he works overtime to communicate this fortune, fame, power, pleasure syndrome. And he's still working overtime to do it. you got to be aware of him. you got to have your head on a swivel. You've got to understand that the fight is real. And I'm going to end with this. Christian, Ephesians chapter 6. I was going to take us there and dive into it, but we're going a little long. Let's end with this. Here's what Paul encourages us to do. Finally, brothers, sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, you know this passage because we teach it to children all the time, don't we? We're not going to cover this section. It's a little later. The full armor of God. We use it all the time. I think it's a little... It's a, it's a little troubling sometimes when we teach younger kids things that we haven't whipped just yet. We need to make sure that we're understanding God's Word too before we attack this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You realize he's, he's talking to believers here? Sure, non-believers should listen to this, but they're way behind in this game because they don't even have the Holy Spirit. They're not redeemed and they're, already, they're, they're still on His side. They're, that's their God. No, believer, you've got an enemy that's working hard to keep you from doing what you were put here to do. Your purpose in life, to bring about the truth, to give God glory, and to point people to Jesus. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus references this in John 12 to tell you, listen, I've beat him, but you're going to have to fight here in this world for a little bit longer because those who are lost are lost because he's deceiving them. And you have what's an epic, incredible thing, the truth right in front of you to use. And it's our call to use it. Romans 16.20 gives us a conclusion to this, and I'll end with this passage. Paul, at the end of his book of Romans, so much good theology in this, but in chapter 16, as he ends it, verse 20 Right at the end of his conclusion, he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan. He's coming back. He's going to establish his kingdom. And Satan will be defeated once and for all. It will happen. But right now, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Walk in the grace that God gives you through his word, the Holy Spirit, to do the things you were called to do, your purpose in life, to learn from the Messiah and do what he did. Do what he does. Do the job that you were commissioned to do. Be the ambassador that you were called to do, knowing you got an enemy who's good at what he does. But you have a Savior that's better. You have an enemy that is powerful, but you have the God of the universe behind you. You have an enemy that knows his destiny, but you know yours too. If that doesn't motivate you to honor the one who saved you, I don't know what does. Believer, I'll encourage you, listen to him and do what he says. He's your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you have defeated Satan. We thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that you've given us a way out. We thank you for your word and how true it is. We thank you that your grace is what's going to sustain us. You've defeated Satan, and while we are still fighting against his schemes, you're going to give us the grace that we need to continue to do this work this incredible, eternal work that you have for us to do. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the time and your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.